0: Titled uh, The Message. Oh! Make it more crazy. <laughs> <Good job>. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Uh, Matthew 26. Uh, let's uh, have a word of prayer together and then we'll get into our study. Lord, again, we thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Commit our study to you now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Note on the overhead, we have an outline of uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, The theme is Christ the King, and we are in that section in chapters 26 and 27, The Passion of the King. Matthew has presented many credentials showing that Jesus is indeed the Christ, uh, the prophesied Messiah as seen in the Old Testament Scriptures. Israel, led by her religious leaders, rejected the truth claims of Christ, which led to the high drama confrontations of the Passion Week, which, of course, climaxes in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on what we know as Good Friday, which, of course, then was climaxed with the resurrection. Well, the whole background of what we're studying at this point really needs to be understood through the lens of Matthew twenty uh, one twenty one and Matthew 20.28. 20, uh, notice what we read there in chapter 1. She will bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I mean, from the very beginning, this was the ordained plan of God. And then chapter 20, verse 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So again, in the ministry of Christ, even earlier here, we see Christ fully understood why he came. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Well, in our study, we are on the night before the crucifixion. Jesus has just instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper, communion, and foretold of Peter's imminent denial, which Peter, of course, vehemently denied would happen. And that brings us to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we find one of the most moving scenes in the entire ministry of Jesus. William McDonald says, No one can approach this account of the Garden of Gethsemane without realizing that he is walking on holy ground. Let's pick it up. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. Gethsemane was on the slopes of uh, the Mount of Olives, uh, which was separated from Jerusalem by the Kidron Valley. Uh, In Luke 22, 39 through 46, it is called the Mount of Olives. John 18, 1 calls it a garden. Uh, So here is what we're looking at as far as a map. Uh, Garden of Gethsemane, you know, right across from the Temple Mount, you have the Kidron Valley here. So it's right on the slopes of of the Mount of Olives here. Uh, There's the Kidron Valley here, so... Uh, right in here somewhere, Gar- Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, what else? I guess that's pretty much what we want to say about that. Luke 22, uh, 39 through 40 indicates that it was Christ's custom uh, to come here, which would account for Judas knowing exactly where to find him. The word Gethsemane literally means oil press, uh, the area was covered with olive trees. Uh, The fruit from the trees was put in oil presses uh, to extract oil from it. Uh, Appropriately, this was called the the, the place of the press, the place of the crush. And it was here that Jesus felt the press of his soul in an unparalleled way. It was here that the shadow of the cross hung over Jesus in a horrific fashion that we can only begin to uh, try to comprehend, but we can't. Uh, It was here that Jesus experienced what I call the dark night of the soul. And it was here that we are taught how to cope with the dark night of the soul, as seen in the importance of prayer. How did Jesus prepare his soul for the greatest trauma and drama of all time? Well, he prepared himself in prayer. And there's a great lesson here. As they came to the entrance of the garden, Jesus instructed most of his disciples to sit there, evidently at the entrance, uh, while he went on a little distance from them to pray. Now, a footnote, a, a garden of ancient olive trees <clears throat> remains in this area to this very day, which when, I was, uh, when we were in uh, Jerusalem, we, we, uh, they took us to this, this place, uh, which is, of course, a popular place for tourists to go. Well, some of these old trees are thought to be between 1,000 and perhaps even 2,000 years old, dating all the way back to the time of Christ. So these are very old trees. And it's remarkable to stand there and to think that this may have been very close to the place uh, where Jesus Christ had his Garden of Gethsemane experience. So uh, note, uh, just a look at these trees here, you know, they they do look old even. And they are old, no question about it. Verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, of course, the, the two sons of Zebedee were James and John, and they are often, these three, referred to as the inner circle. Uh, they were with Jesus on special occasions when the other disciples were not. Uh, they all three, for example, were at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they were all uniquely allowed to see Jesus uh, raise the daughter of Jairus from the dead. It was these three who were the closest to Jesus. And in the dark night of the soul experience, Jesus wanted them close. And they were closer than the other than the other disciples, the other eight at this point. And we would expect them being the inner circle, um, John being the one that Jesus loved, but they were close to this whole inner circle. And it would be expected that they would hopefully be the most understanding and the most sympathetic during this most difficult time in Christ's life. But you know, uh, sometimes those closest to you let you down. Uh, Sadly, being human, uh, people cannot always be counted on. I'm not always totally 100% faithful. You aren't either. We're all human. Jesus left the eight at the entrance, but then going on a little further with this inner circle of the three, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. The word sorrowful depicts the idea of deep grief. Deeply distressed is the idea of greatly troubled it was obvious that Jesus was beginning to experience extreme anguish at this point. And they didn't have to wonder because Jesus plainly told them what was going on inside of him. Verse 38, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Luke twenty-two forty-one says, Jesus went about a stone's throw beyond them. Uh, they estimate that, you know, person in good health can, uh, stone throw would probably be about 70 yards. And so uh, he said, stay here and watch with me. Now note the phrase, even to death, emphasizes extreme inner turmoil. That is so overpowering, it feels like it's going to kill you. Uh, no one ever felt the keen battle with sin on the level that Jesus did. Truly, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And on a level none of us will ever know. And because of the ultimate anguish Jesus experienced in spiritual warfare, he can relate to the suffering we go through in our battle. In the spiritual warfare that we know. And we do wrestle with these forces of darkness. And and it can be very dark at times. Very troubling. But we have a savior. We have a high priest. And we read in Hebrews chapter 4, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, the frailty of of being human. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And of course, this time of need is is when we are, are facing temptation and we are struggling. Jesus can relate to our human struggles. He can relate to human weakness. Although he never succumbed to sin. Still he can relate and sympathize with our struggles. There's an old song, uh, No Not One. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No one not one. Hebrews uh, interacts with what he went through, and uh, we think this uh, relates to uh, even the experience that we're talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus learned to submit in the darkest and the hardest of times. Even when humanly speaking, as a human being, he didn't feel like it. Now many commentators think that the phrase, even to death, harks back and really reflects the the ongoing refrain in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. We read there, Psalm 42, 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. This is the kind of description that relates to what we're talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane. In this death-like experience of the soul, Jesus instructed the inner circle to stay here and watch with me. Watch literally means to stay awake. You know, if you're going to watch, the first thing you have to do is stay awake, right? Uh, But it's closely connected with the emphasis on prayer, especially as we see in verse 41. He directly connects watching and praying at that point. But in particular, note the emphasis here on with me, with me. Here in verse 38, also in verse 40. Jesus desired them to be with him in this great struggle, in the horror of this experience. You know, sometimes when you're in the dark night of the soul, as I call it, there is nothing more important than just having those you love and trust be with you in the experience. They don't even have to say anything, necessarily. Just the reality of witness ministers on a level that defies words. Jesus, in effect, was just asking that they be alert and be with him in prayer. I think the worst of the cross experience was the alienation that Jesus experienced from God the Father, which, again, is beyond comprehension. I don't think it was the physical experience, although horrific as it was, I think the really major thing was the, was the spiritual experience of being separated from God the Father. Verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The phrase fell on his face emphasizes the intensity of the moment as it expresses overwhelming distress. And we see here the humanness of Jesus that can relate to us in our deepest suffering. In this state of humility, Jesus set aside the independent use of his divine attributes and functioned as a completely dependent servant, taking his direction and doing only the will of the Father. Now, in this state... Jesus, in Matthew 24, 36, acknowledged his self-confessed ignorance, saying that even he as the Son did not know the day nor the hour. On some level, I think we, uh, we have something similar here. Jesus knew he was born to go to the cross. He knew what the Scripture said. He himself repeatedly said this was going to happen. Yet as the reality of the cross pressed in upon him, we see the very human side of Jesus where he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In the intensity of the moment, this is how he humanly felt. It was so overwhelming and so daunting that humanly speaking, he wondered if there was any other way that salvation be. The salvation of the world could be accomplished. This proposition put forth by Jesus serves to show that there was no other way. Jesus knew this, but humanly it was overwhelming to the point where he says, if it is possible. But it wasn't. This was God's plan, and there was no plan B. No matter what the human experience was, there was no other way. If salvation was to be accomplished, it had to happen by way of the cross. Now, a key in understanding is uh, to understand what what is meant by this cup. This cup. Although facing a gruesome death would be daunting for any human being. There have been many martyrs who faced death with great steadiness and peace. The death of Christ was no normal physical death. It was totally unique, involving so much more than any other death. Now, the view that says the cup was that Christ feared premature death at the hand of Satan in the garden really loses all credibility. Because in John 18, 12, Jesus plainly sep- says the cup came from the father and not Satan. Furthermore, Jesus was very clear that no one could take his life from him, but rather he voluntarily laid it down. Moody Bible Commentary has a good summary statement here. God may have given him an exhaustive view of what was before him so that his sacrificial death could be Fully obedient and fully voluntary. To go blindfolded is to go as a victim, not a gracious, obedient volunteer. In Gethsemane, the blindfold came off. It was when Jesus saw the full force of his suffering and he exercised full obedience. Offered with full freedom, with full knowledge and full willingness. In his human nature, he recoiled from the prospect and prayed for deliverance from it. But since God the Son came to do the will of God the Father, he obeyed his Father. And that is the emphasis of Scripture at this point. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Humanly speaking, I mean, when you're really faced with this, it's like recoils at it and yet submits to it. The cup of God in scriptures is used figuratively either of God's blessing or of his wrath, but mostly of his wrath. In context here, the cup would clearly seem to represent the wrath of, Of God, as experienced by Jesus, as the sin of the whole world was about to be placed upon him. Cup, the cup of God, and the wrath of God are consistently uh, together in the scriptures. For example, here in Revelation 14:10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. This is describing those that are lost. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb, in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And then in 1619, Now the great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Again, associating the idea of the cup and his wrath. Well, in our natural state as unsaved people, and then we, we are born in sin. That's why we need to be born again. We need to come to know Jesus and have our faith in Him. But in our natural state, we are under the wrath of God. We read in John three thirty six: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, and really uh, the obedience of faith is the very first thing that we ever do to please God, Uh, And I think that's what we're talking about here. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. If you are not a believer in Christ, the wrath of God hovers over you. And at some point it will fall on you with full force if you don't come to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But the good news is that Jesus on the cross took our place and bore the punishment that we deserve. We read in Romans 5, 9, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Now, there is a $50 theological word that denotes the removal of God's wrath. Do you know what it is? Well, it is the word propitiation. It's a special word. It means to satisfy, literally, to satisfy. And at the cross, God's wrath against sin was satisfied. God accepted Christ's sacrifice as a worthy payment, a satisfactory payment for sin. We read in Romans chapter 3, whom God set forth, speaking of Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. A satisfactory payment satisfied the wrath of God against sin, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. H- how do you receive it? How do you enter into the, to this uh, the good of this satisfactory payment? Through faith, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just. Sin has to be paid for. Uh, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ became a curse for us. Habakkuk 1.13 says, God cannot look upon sin. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so he can have no fellowship with sin. In making Jesus sin, the Father was completely separated from the Son, which, as I say, I believe, was the worst part of the experience on the cross. And here's what was happening prophetically, in Isaiah 53, we read, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. Isn't that interesting? You make his soul an offering for sin. Not just his physical body, but his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. There you go. Propitiation. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He knew what was going on, and he willingly went through with it, for he shall bear their iniquities. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, Hence the most satisfying explanation of the cup refers to the divine wrath, which Christ would incur at the cross as he became man's sin bearer. This experience, during which God for a time was separated from his Son, gave rise to the awful cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If one man's sin can cause him bitter grief when he feels estrangement from God, how incomparable must have been the anguish of Jesus who knew what it meant to assume the guilt of all mankind. NIV Study Bible says, The cup is a symbol of deep sorrow and suffering. Here it refers to the Father's face being turned away from Him when He had no sin and was made sin. That is, became a sin offering for us. Note that in His humanness, Jesus said, If it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. But then instantly in the same breath, He also said, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This denotes total submission. There was no rebel resistance, only holy obedience. And there is tremendous mystery here. Jesus, as the God-man, still had his own will, and yet it was totally aligned with the will of the Father. As God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are one. And yet we see here both the Father and the Son have their own will. There's deep mystery here. In the triune God of the Bible, we have three distinct persons. And yet they represent the unity of the one true God. We have a God so profound, we can't figure him out. We just bow before him. Well, Jesus asked, if it is possible, and what was the answer? Well, William MacDonald says, there was none. The heavens were silent. By this eloquent silence, we know that there was no other way for God to justify guilty sinners than for Christ, the sinless Savior, to die as our substitute. Verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said, Peter, said to Peter, "Uh, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus was in the most intense, troubling time of his life. And his disciples were sleeping, oblivious to this most momentous hour in the history of the world. Peter, often the self-appointed spokesman for the group, had just shortly before this declared that he would never deny Christ. And then, of course, the rest of the disciples also chimed in but if you're going to assume the, uh, the major spokesman position, well, then you better be prepared to be called out when you fail. Jesus very specifically called out Peter, but it is addressed plurally uh, to them all when Jesus said, What could you not watch with me one hour? Now, Peter had emphatically declared he could be counted on even to die for the Lord. But here he was failing to even stay awake, failing to prayerfully stay awake for even one hour. In the time of Christ's greatest need, Peter, who had affirmed that he was all in, could not even be counted on to stay awake. Again, MacDonald says, We dare not condemn them when we think of our own prayer lives. We sleep better than we pray. And our minds wander when they should be watching. Ooh, that's kind of convicting. I'll I'll just apply it to myself. That's, boy, that is true. A lot of times, you know, not being alert and prayerful when I should be. Again, note the emphasis on with me. John Walford says, While many truths can be derived from a study of this passage, the overwhelming impression is the one of the loneliness of Jesus in his hour of crucifixion. You know, it seems to me when you go through a really hard time and you have to go it all along, there is, there, is there anything worse than the loneliness? The, nobody with me to share in, the, in what I'm going through. Very, very, very difficult. Verse 41. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What a profound verse. It knows us. Jesus knows us. Here Jesus clearly connects watching with prayer. To remain spiritually vigilant is to be prayerful. Here Jesus indicates that prayerful vigilance is the key to spiritual victory and not falling prey to temptation. The way to be spiritually strong is to handle life with prayer. When facing a major crisis point, the way to handle it is with prayer. When life becomes more intense, we should handle it with more intense prayer. This is the great example and model of our Lord. This is how to properly deal with human weakness. It sometimes seems we try everything else. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe we should. You know, if you can't do anything else, at the end of the day, I guess tack on prayer. No. Uh, prayer should be our first line. We can only compensate for our weakness through prayer. And prayer is acknowledging we're weak. We start there. We're weak. You say, "Why?" Well, I, I think you should be more stronger. Yeah, I guess we could all say that all the time. We're all very fragile. We're all very weak. We're all very human. Jesus at this point was addressing only the disciples who were true, sincere believers. You know, Judas had defected and he was gone. You know, he had, he had a little, you know, had to go get somebody. And so he was uh, gone away on his betrayal mission. And so this statement doesn't apply to him. When Jesus says the spirit indeed is willing. But it did apply to the rest of the disciples. When Peter said, I will never be made to stumble, his spirit was indeed willing. I think Peter totally meant it. And he proved it by getting out the sword when they came. When Peter said, I will not, not deny you, his spirit was indeed willing. And when all the other disciples said the same, they too were indeed willing in their spirit. You see, they were all well-intentioned. They all had good hearts in that sense. The Spirit was indeed willing. (laughs) Don't overlook that point. These guys were good guys. They meant well. They were all in with Jesus, except for Judas. But you see, good intentions only take you so far. And they cannot make up for human weakness. As Jesus said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, there's the problem, the flesh is weak. It is because of human weakness that we need the strengthening of prayer. We need to depend upon God. In our humanness, we will surely fall and fail. We need help. Even Jesus, in his humanness, needed to pray. Even he needed to look to God for the strength that he needed to faithfully deal with the great challenge before him. He handled it with prayer and was faithful, was obedient. The sleepy disciples were prayerless and therefore failed miserably. Prayer makes all the difference. Jesus taught us to pray. And one of the things he taught us to pray was this. Do not lead us into temptation. Guide us in such a way. Protect us. Uh, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The sense here is that of guarding us and guiding us, leading us in such a way that he's protecting us. So that we do not fall into temptation. We need his protective care. We are always in danger, and we need constant help. And so we need to constantly be in prayer, looking to God to strengthen and keep us. In terms of the disciples here, the ESV study Bible says, their temptation was to succumb to physical sleep, and so fail in their responsibility to support Jesus. It may also point to the temptation to deny Jesus when he is led away to the cross. Verse 42. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, we see the humanness of Jesus, and yet his total submission to the will of the Father. This mission was totally horrible, to the point that, humanly speaking, Jesus did not want to do it, and yet was yielded to the will of the Father. This serves to show us just how incredibly difficult it was to go to the cross. We really can't even begin to imagine what Jesus went through to secure our salvation. One commentary says, In the first petition, uh, verse 39, the conditional clause is positive. In verses 42 and 44, it is negative, expressive of Jesus' growing awareness that the cup will not be taken away until he has emptied it. Verse 43, Verse 43, And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Once again, he finds them sleeping. And this time, you know what? He didn't wake them. He didn't wake them up this time. Bible knowledge commentary, their sleeping and resting was in stark contrast to his agonizing and praying to the point of exhaustion and perspiration. He was lonely. For though the disciples were nearby, they were useless in their intercession. And indeed they were. We note that it is not recorded that God answered uh, Jesus, which in effect affirmed that there was no other option as we've already brought out. But in this process, in a sense, there was an answer as brought out by Luke. We have this little editorial comment in Luke twenty-two forty-three. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. This reminds me of when Paul repeatedly asked the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. The Father in this case gave Jesus the strengthening grace that he needed in providing an angel to minister to him. God the Father would not remove the cup, but he did provide a strengthening angel to sustain Jesus in the strain of it all. And then after the angel strengthened Jesus, Luke goes on to emphasize the agony of the experience which continued beyond what we can comprehend. We read then immediately after this in Luke twenty-two forty-four, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So fervent was this prayer session that Christ's sweat became like great drops of blood. Now, we're not quite sure what this means. It is noted that the word like indicates similarity. So it could mean that his perspiration was so profuse, it was like blood spilling out on the ground, not necessarily blood itself. But again, it's not totally clear. But it is clear that the struggle was extremely intense at this point. And Jesus is handling it with prayer. He prayed more earnestly. Verse 44. So he left them, went away again, prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now praying the same thing is not necessarily vain repetition. In Matthew 6, 7, Jesus said, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Vain repetition is when you just mouth empty words in a ritualistic manner, thinking that wordy counts for something. Uh, Isn't it ironic that what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that could never have been prayed by the Lord, forgive us our trespasses. I mean, he never trespassed. And uh, isn't it ironic that he says, um, in that same context there, as he gives the the quote-unquote Lord's Prayer, uh, he says, do not uh, use vain uh, repetition. And yet, This is one of the worst cases of uh, vain repetition where people just mindlessly uh, quote the, quote-unquote, Lord's Prayer. Talk about vain repetition. Uh, We are not to do that. Uh, Jesus said that vain prayers, those that are praying vain prayers, think that they will be heard for their many words. You know, it counts. I've said the words, a long, wordy prayer. You know, you don't have to be wordy. I, I used to have a professor who used to say, long in private, short in public. Uh, pretty good counsel. Uh, so there is such a thing as mindlessly, just vainly repeating words. You know, it's kind of like I used to have assignments in Bible college. You had to have so many words <laughs> in your paper. It's like just filler words, right? That have paragraphs, just filler. I mean, you weren't saying a thing, but I had to have so many words. Uh, we don't want to do that with God. Don't just vainly repeat words. But there is such a thing as repeating the same thing in a sincere way. Repeating the same request before God from the heart because it is the overwhelming issue on your heart. And that is where Jesus was coming from here. Once again, we do not see a direct answer from God the Father. Three times Jesus intensely took this to the Father in prayer and three times received, in effect, silence. Which was rightly understood as no, there is no other way. Sometimes the answer to our prayer is no. And sometimes that becomes obvious in that no other door is opened. Yet, as I already indicated, God did answer in the form of providing an angel to strengthen Jesus. And beyond this, the Bible indicates that Jesus' prayer for deliverance was heard and was ultimately answered in the resurrection. You see, sometimes God answers prayers the way we ask for and the way we hope for, but sometimes he answers in a different way than we intended. Uh, notice what it says if you read carefully in Hebrews five seven. It talks about in the days of his flesh when he offered up prayers, supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard. In what way was he heard? Well, I think the answer is seen in what we call the, the psalm of the cross. Psalm 22. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then it says, you have answered me. Well, how was this answered? This prayer for deliverance in relationship to the cross. Well, it was answered in the resurrection. Goes on to say in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you, which is used in the context of the resurrection as seen in Hebrews chapter 2. What a great contrast is drawn in this text. Over against the threefold denials of Peter is the threefold petitions of Christ. Peter's great self-confidence needed no prayer, but Christ in his troubled soul was driven to intense prayer. Each time yielding to the will of God the Father. Again and again, we have to come back to God's will and not ours. Again and again, we must come back to, not as I will, but your will be done. This is what Christ modeled for us. Verse 45, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. The question, are you still sleeping, is probably to be understood in an ironic sense with the idea that their opportunity to be useful in the time of crisis has now passed them by. There would be no more time to prayerfully prepare for the coming challenge. Time was up. Behold, the hour was at hand when the Son of Man was being betrayed into the hands of sinners. There comes a time When the time for preparatory prayer is over, they'd missed their opportunity. Consequently, they had been no help to Christ. They were personally totally unprepared for their time of testing, which now lay straight ahead. D.A. Carson says, Doubtless Jesus could see and hear the party approaching as it crossed the Kidron Valley with torches and climbed up the path to Gethsemane. The sleepers for whom he would die have lost their opportunity to gain strength through prayer. By contrast, Jesus prayed in agony, but now rises with poise and advances to meet his betrayer. Again, there seems to be a play on the idea of three throughout this whole context. Jesus told Peter he would deny him three times, verse 34. On three occasions, Jesus found Peter and the disciples sleeping. Perhaps a connection is being drawn between the three times sleeping and three denials. In contrast, Christ prayed in earnest three times and emerges now ready to go to the cross. Arousing the sleepers, Jesus then says, verse 46, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus knew what was happening and knew there was no way around it. He had to go to the cross in keeping with the will of the Father. And now he was prayerfully prepared to do so. Thomas Constable says, Jesus had prayed and now met his temptation with strength and dignity, and he overcame it. The disciples had slept and now met theirs with weakness and fear and fell before it. Jesus did not rise in flight or retreat, but rather went forward prepared to now face the betrayer and the mob with him. Jesus did not cower or react hysterically, but rather responded with poise and dignity as one strengthened and resolved to do the will of God. J. Vernon McGee says, It is impossible for you and me to enter into the full significance of Gethsemane. But I think it was there that he won the victory of Calvary. David Guzik says, if Jesus failed here, he would have failed at the cross. His success here made the victory at the cross possible. The struggle at the cross was first won in the prayer in Gethsemane. I think they are right. God works through prayer. The greatest victory in the history of the world, as seen in the cross, was made possible through agonizing prayer in Gethsemane. The victory of the cross was first wrought in prayer in the garden. What we have here is a grand lesson on the essential and important place of prayer in the great struggles of life. You're having great struggles. The Bible says if if anyone's weak, let him go to the elders, the strong men of prayer, let them pray. There's power in prayer. God works through prayer. Really, there's power in God, but he works through prayer. This is how we cope. As we go along, we see Peter got the message. Peter got the message. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I mean, is Jesus coming right to the end? What's the end of it? Prayer. Peter says, the end of all things. Pray, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. How do you prepare for a major testing time? How do you prepare for the dark night of the soul? You cannot improve on what Jesus modeled. You want those close to you to be with you. And you want them to watch in prayer with you. There is a reason the Bible says pray without ceasing. This is where the battle is won or lost. Prayer is the great work behind all else that is done. Prayer is the great work. Someone has observed that Jesus performed his mighty miracles without an outward sign of strain. But when it came to prayer, we read that he offered up prayers with loud crying and tears. And being in agony, he prayed. We all need prayer, and we need it constantly. Because we are constantly dependent upon God for our strength. And it is work. The great work is prayer. People say, what can I do to serve? Often, I mean, prayer rarely comes up. You know, you say, "Uh, Pastor, what can I uh, do to serve? Can I pray? (laughs) No, Nobody ever says that to me. And this this is the greatest thing we can do. How much effort do we really put into prayer? I mean, do we really work at it? Someone has said, if you want to put a Christian to shame, just ask them about their prayer life. Now, there are exceptions. Praise the Lord for strong prayer work, and and we have them. But all too often, this is the case. Charles Spurgeon is often referred to as the Prince of Preachers. He ministered at a Baptist church in London called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Under his ministry, through the course of the years, about 15,000 people joined the church under under his ministry. It was the largest independent church in the world in his day. Well, one day, some young college students made their way to London to hear Spurgeon preach. And, and often they had so many visitors that they would tell the, the people of the church, please, uh, why, why don't you, you know, leave? They had only a sanctuary seat, about 5,500 people. So uh, why, don't some, why don't I have 1,000 of you leave so we can let the visitors come in? Any volunteers? Nobody? I'm just kidding. They, they, would, they would accommodate. But arriving early, these college students found the, the place locked up. And suddenly, a stranger approached and asked them if they would like to see the heating apparatus of the church. They hadn't come for that, but they agreed to go with him. He led them into the building and down a long flight of stairs into a hallway. And at the end of the hallway was a door that opened to a large room filled with 700 people on their knees praying. The stranger who had just happened to lead them there was Spurgeon himself. And he said, this is the heating apparatus of the church. Leonard Ravenhill said, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and few payers. Oops, nope. Many players and payers. (laughs) Uh, Few prayers. Many singers, few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, many fears, few tears, Much fashion, little passion, many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. So said Leonard Ravenhill. Well, God, help us to be people of prayer. The Father has never forsaken his own. Don't you love it? The Lord promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear. You are with me. He'll never leave his own. Yet the Father forsook his Son so that he might never forsake us. And the Son accepted this cup so that we might be with him forever. Philip Bliss wrote, Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And William MacDonald says, Before we leave the garden... Let us pause once more to hear his sobs, to ponder his sorrow, and to thank him with all our hearts. Indeed, let us thank him with all our hearts. Let's stand and have our closing songs.